welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone. Kelly Deutsch here, and welcome to the next episode of our Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. Today, I have joining us Randy Woodley. And Randy is an activist, he's a scholar, author of many books, and a wisdom keeper. He's a Cherokee descendant, and he speaks on justice, faith, earth, and indigenous realities. He's written many books, including Shalom and the Community of Creation and Living in Color. And he and his wife, uh, co-sustain the Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and the Farm and Seeds. He creates and collects <laughs> lots of seeds, which I'm interested to hear about later, um, over in Oregon, which is also where I'm at. And so I'm excited to have you today, Randy, to talk about some of these um, indigenous realities, how to decolonize, and all the work that you're up to. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. Been looking forward to meeting you for a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory and what it was like growing up Native American in the U.S. And if you even, if that was even an identity or a heritage that you always claimed, or if that was something that you came into. Yeah, so uh, both and. So uh, I was actually born in Alabama, a mm -hmm. uh, portion that's actually Cherokee country down there. Um, uh, and uh, born to two people who are mixed blood Cherokees and whose families were fully assimilated um, and uh, grew up in a place called Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is, and I grew up, the, Ypsilanti, some people know it because it's the, uh, like the, uh, the other side of the tracks from Ann Arbor, Michigan, they joined together. And the other side of the tracks from Ypsilanti is called Willow Run, Michigan. And that's where I grew up. And much of uh, the, the de demographics um, reflect uh, a lot of uh, Detroit. Uh, so uh, very multicultural, multiracial. And, uh, and so you grow up in that. And if you're not white, you have to uh, identify with uh, other people. And so uh, my parents, um, the church that we belonged to was full of people from the South. I always say I grew up in the deep South in a portion of uh, Southeast Michigan um, because they all moved there for the great migration for, um, you know, to work in the automobile factories and all of that. And so my, my folks hung out with a bunch of mixed blood people also like themselves and, and they would always talk about their you know, uh, grandparents speaking the language and all this kind of stuff. They talked about it in romantic ways, but, but I was like, well, I want to be a real Indian. You know, I don't want to talk about my great, great grandparents speaking the language or mm. something like that. And so I sort of from, I think from about the third grade, third or fourth grade on, I just started trying to identify as native and, uh, 
um, you know, that became my sort of goal, uh, goal. I hung out with all the native kids when, when they went to our schools um, and hung out in their homes and tried to learn what it was like to be a real Indian. And, and uh, uh, yeah, so I grew up with that uh, identity and uh, um, that was a, uh, and then, you know, became uh, recognized. My ancestry was recognized by the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma, who are, who are a federally recognized tribe. But because I didn't have enough blood quantum to uh, qualify as a tribal member, I had to be what's called a descendant. So, um, so that's okay. You know, I, I know who I am. I know who my ancestors are and uh, ended up, um, you know, eventually marrying a, a native woman. My wife, Edith, is from the Wind River Indian Reservation, and we raised our kids both in a uh, traditional, spiritual way and uh, uh, earlier Christian way, but we really don't call ourselves Christians. We haven't for probably 10 or 12 years now, but uh, um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of my story. Hmm. Um, there's a lot more hmm. to it, but that's the, the general outline, I think. Yeah. 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 So I've been really fortunate. One other thing I would say is I've been really fortunate along my life's path to be taken in by elders um, who saw, you know, my heart and my hunger. And, uh, and, and I'm talking about old, old elders who were people who were just the most incredible people on earth, um, tolerant to a fault, um, just uh, who, who understood what it is to be human. And so um, I think more than anything, they've taught me how to just be a human being. Hmm. Yeah. How did that heritage, well, two questions, how did that like impact you in the day to day and the practicality as well as, you know, in your interior life? Like what, what was different about the indigenous worldview from, you know, just the rest of your, you know, white friends in Ypsilanti, Michigan? Um, and also, yeah. how did your parents respond to that since they were fully assimilated? Was that something they welcomed or, you know, was that a little strange for them? Yes and no for them. Um, my mom was always very proud of her ancestry and she had um, uh, a, a person who was a uh, leader, a chief in her ancestry. Hmm. Um, found out later some things about him that don't make me so proud, but uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she doesn't know about all that. She's passed on now. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think it was, uh, it was okay with them. I mean, that was, that was okay. Uh, they were, I think they were happy about that. Um, the per first part of the question was. Yeah. How the, how your traditions, your heritage and embracing all of that, um, whether, you know, learning as a fourth grader in Michigan or from, you know, various elders throughout time, like how did that impact your yeah. life and what were some of the qualities of that that changed you? Well, I sought it out, right? So I sought a path that would lead me there. You know, um, my, I guess a goal was to um, bring, uh, reintroduce, if you will, uh, our indigenous ways and in, in our family line, because that's where we come from. And I always, um, I'm just going to be really blunt and honest and say, it's a much better way of living hmm. and thinking. And uh, it's much more harmonious to the world around us. And, hmm. and there was something about that, even as a child that drew me. 
and uh, I've that's only proven to be true over and over and over again, no matter how old I get. So mm. um, I'm my wife and I are what we call uh, now. The anthropologists have a big word for it. It's called indigenous cosmopolitans. So those are people who can operate not just in two different cultures well, but two different worldviews well. Mm -hmm. And of course, women have been doing that, you know, in a man's world for, you know, I don't know how long, lots yeah. of time, lots of this time immemorial, I guess. But, right. um, and, uh, and so we operate in both worlds, but we're much more comfortable in our indigenous worldview and, and, uh, and what the and the gift that that brings to other people as well mm, mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting it's um it requires some code switching like internally like how yeah. how you express things how you show up how you hold yourself i mean sometimes i feel that way even just i i worked for several years in in the corporate world you know and before that i was in the convent and figuring out you know like which parts of you you operate from or are in the forefront maybe and i that even felt kind of like a code switching i might be talking about the same realities but in the business world i might call it you know business skills or emotional intelligence and in the spiritual world i might call it virtue you know and so just figuring yeah. out how what language do we use to talk about the same realities yeah and and even though we're talking about the same realities another thing i came to realize is that we're we're not we actually are living in two different realities. Mm. Um, one is based on a worldview full of competition and capitalism and um, individualism and dualisms and things like that. And one operates on a more holistic, harmonious, co cooperative, uh, group-centered um, mm. worldview. And so I might say the same word, um, but my colleagues, uh, I'm also a professor, my colleagues um, don't think of it in the same way that I do. Mm -hmm. And I have to know that in order to understand them, but they don't really understand me, right? So they don't, they don't know the, which is use the word code switching, the way that I have to um, uh, code switch just to be in conversation with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Because words hold totally different meanings. Um, or realities. <laughs> um, different histories, different associations, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. What would you name as, if you had to name like a handful of qualities that the rest of us, white folk, Westerners, um, folks, whether in the US or abroad, um, have to learn from the indigenous tradition? Yeah. So I should say traditions, because there's lots of different ones among lots of different indigenous people. Absolutely. And um, and I should also uh, make a disclaimer that I only speak for myself and uh, my maybe my wife, if she lets me speak for her sometimes. But uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> OK, so, um, yeah, I you know, the question I could give you um, a, a pretty full answer, because that's sort of what I did my PhD dissertation on my my PhD was in intercultural studies and I I did it on the basically what we call the indigenous harmony way the native harmony way hmm. and the values that are associated with that and I I uh, queried 45 different uh, indigenous people and I did uh, uh, interviews deep interviews 
uh, with eight spiritual leaders, elders who spoke their own languages. And, and I come to find out that this harmony way, uh, we'll call it a construct um, now, this harmony way of living um, is uh, universal among not just Native American people, but indigenous people everywhere. And uh, because I have friends who are Maori and from New Zealand and Aboriginal from Australia and Sami from Norway and uh, Zulu and, uh, um, and they, they have their Mbutu concept uh, that some people have heard of. And, you know, and so we all have this, I think it's what I would call this the original instructions. Hmm. How do we live on this world in a good way? How do we stand as one? in harmony, not just with people like me, but people who are different than me and not just people, but all the animal people and the bird people and the, you know, the insect people and the fish people. And how do we stand as one together and live in a way that can, that we all can prosper and all live fully. And so um, there are a lot of values associated with that. Um, the uh, in, interesting though, if if uh, any of the people who are Christians, which was a lot of my training, and I, I teach at a Christian seminary, um, then the word shalom should come to mind. This what we call this big picture shalom, uh, living in a right way and justice and peace and you know uh, the land producing everything that it should and us um, having spiritual regard for our Creator and all of that. So. Um, yeah, and so some of those values would be things like um, always inviting people into our circles rather than excluding them out. Um, we, we call it officially making a relative. Hmm. Uh, and so relatives are made in Indian country when people come in and um, we see that they have a, a good heart, which is really the main ingredient. And then, then we need to give them a place in the community. And so they're adopted as as nieces and nephews and, and uncles and aunties and, and uh, children, you know, sons and daughters, etc. And so um, always inviting people in. Another one is um, hospitality and generosity. Um, you know, one of the, the things that um, is, is unusual, um, but most people don't realize it because of all the propaganda that's been written into all of our Westerns and our movies and our, you know, all of those kinds of things. But, but indigenous people were at first very hospitable on not every occasion, but almost every occasion to white folks who came over here and the, the idea that they could share land together as opposed to, um, you know, uh, saying, no, this is mine, you can't be here. And it was only when, you know, uh, Western folk wore out their welcome um, by things like genocide and theft and, you know, duplicity that Native people began to say, no, well, if, if that's the way you're going to be, well, then we're, gonna, we're not going to let you be here. And then, of course, that started a lot of wars and things like that. Um, so uh, hospitality and generosity, uh, Indigenous people almost everywhere, but, you know, I can't speak for everywhere. But um, everywhere we've been in Indian country are, are generous, so generous, um, not just with their time, but with their material goods and sharing. And the idea is if you can feed someone, you prolong their life for another day. And so, um, so you're giving life to people. And we have all kinds of ways, both ceremonially and, um, and non-ceremonially, that that works out. Hmm. And... Uh, um, so, for example, the 
the Pueblo people. If you've ever been down to a Pueblo feast. So there's 19 Pueblo tribes right now in New Mexico and Arizona, but there used to be uh, like over 50. And, um, and once or twice a year, they hold a feast. And these feasts are the most incredible food you've ever eaten. Everyone in the village opens up their home and they make all their best dishes. And then they invite perfect strangers into their village and feed them. And they just, you walk down the sidewalk and somebody says, come in here, come in here, you know, and you, you go in and they serve you their best dishes. And, and, um, and, and if you're, if you had 50 groups doing that once to twice a year, uh, you could eat one every other to three days, you, no one would ever go hungry. Right. So, um, so it's one of those practices sort of like in the old Testament where it talks about don't glean the edges of your field. Right. And, um, and, uh, and leave a seventh of your land fallow so that, you know, that, that the wild beast and the immigrants and orphans and widows can, can come and gather their food in that so that they can eat. And so, um, you know, these are, and, and there's so many traditions around the world that are similar. Um, it's a way of living that is just, uh, and, and another, another value is that, that everyone has a place um you know elders are sacred because you know they are coming close to their time with the creator and and children are sacred because they've come from this place that no one understands and so so we watch them and say what can we learn you know about uh, our creator from the children and and women are sacred because um they, they have the gift of being able to give life like mother earth herself mm-hmm. And uh, if, if anybody is not sort of considered a priori uh, special and sacred, it's men, right? They sort of have to find their way in society traditionally. They have to be good hunters or good providers or, you know, uh, those kinds of things so that, that they can um, have a place of honor too. But yeah, so everybody has a place, um, you know, um, our spirituality is very tangible. Hmm. Um, you know, we use things like circles and eagles and, you know, uh, uh, smoke and, and things that, that uh, are symbols and in our ceremonies and our songs and our stories, they, they uh, touch on all of those things. And so that we remember those things in every, every way that we do. But I, I mean, I could go on and on, but um, there's just so much about our indigenous l- worldview that is so much better. Yes, I'm prejudiced. Um, so much better than the Western worldview. But here's mm. the thing: we were all indigenous originally. Mm-hmm. We all have that in our DNA. And even if you don't know what your DNA is, you can be guaranteed that uh, originally um, your people were indigenous to somewhere. They knew how to live with the land as a group. And so I believe we can all find our way back to that. It doesn't mean that we can all be a part of a particular tribe, but we can all draw from our own indigeneity and also honor the the tribes who are among us and uh, learn from them as well. So, um, so, so this doesn't leave out anybody. This includes everybody. I think we can get back to what I would call those original instructions if we have a mind to. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. And it makes me think of just how popular things like 23andMe have become, like people who want to know what their heritage is and how, um, I think as a younger person that didn't 
mattered that much to me. You know, I mean, in high school, we had to do some sort of project where, you know, it's like family tree history and things and you find stories. It was kind of interesting just to find out things about your, your past. But I think it's been, you know, more in my second half of life, um, you know, last decade and a half, maybe or two, um, that that's become much more significant. Um, knowing where I come from and what the traditions have been like when I found out so my dad's side of the family is all Jewish and I knew that my dad's so my dad's dad came over from Hungary he survived Auschwitz and came to the U.S. and that's like where his heritage is has some relatives in Israel but I didn't know that my dad's mom who came via England she was uh before that was a Russian Jew and I didn't know I had heritage in Russia I'm like and I that was something that I fell in love with even before I knew that was this Russian soul and I had no idea why that appealed to me so much you know just kind of like the mystic heart of Russia um and so it was it's enlightening to find out why certain things resonate in us and how those um, traditions and heritages show up in in who we are and how we live our lives and our longings yeah yeah so much and you know you mentioned the holocaust and I'm I'm sorry your family had to go through that um but there is something also uh, that we we share uh, when people have gone through things, and that's um, intergenerational trauma. Absolutely. Um, we all have to learn to speak to that in our own lives. And the more people who talk about that and with each other, and the more those feelings come out and that understanding of what this is, because it's a real thing, right? Oh, my gosh. But, um, yeah. yeah. And we, we have the intergenerational so, you know, we're, we're, we're beginning to peg, you know, what is intergenerational trauma, but we just don't even have a clue of what's coming front through our DNA. Right. Yeah. So, so here's a, here's a really kind of quirky and funny thing. Um, I, I did all of those as well. And, uh, and then I come to find out that uh, I have a fifth great parent, grandparent who was Ethiopian. Well, that I would have never suspected that. Right. But uh in 1980, my next door neighbors were Ethiopian and they taught me how to make Ethiopian food and it became my favorite and I crave it constantly. And I thought, now, isn't that interesting? Now I find out in 2020 that I have, I have Ethiopian heritage. So there's something deep inside there, uh, like you, you talked about, you know, that affinity for the Russian soul, the affinity for the Ethiopian people and their food. Um, you know, there's, there's so much there. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, it's a great time of discovery right now of our, of our DNA, but it's not just the DNA. It's who we are. It's who made us to be here. All those ancestors were wanting us to be here mm -hmm. and they cared about that. Right. And mm -hmm. so we carry their um, desires and their hopes. And so that makes people pretty sacred and pretty interesting. Yes, absolutely. I um, last year read the book, It Didn't Start With You, about intergenerational trauma. And that was so mind-blowing for me to see how things that a lot of indigenous traditions have known for a long time, you know, that this heritage can be, can travel down bloodlines, essentially. Um, but to see how science is discovering those things, you know, and the different studies that they've done. And I mean, even simple things like, you know, um, babies who had not yet be, been conceived 
when 9-11 happened, but still, you know, were conceived after that event from somebody who, you know, was near the Twin Towers and then afterwards had symptoms of PTSD because their mothers experienced that, you know, or of, you know, they've done things with like lab rats as well, you know, where it's like they basically traumatized some lab rats. And then like for three generations, they all had the same symptoms to the exact same stimulus. You know, they smelled the sweet cherry smell and then would shock the poor animals. And for three generations, just that smell would send them all into like anxious, you know, kind of PTSD like symptoms. And it's amazing to see, I mean, no wonder in America, at least, you know, these awful traditions that we've had, these lineages, both for, you know, black Americans, as well as the indigenous traditions, how much is carried down the lines that changes our DNA or our epigenetics and that what yeah. it's not just like, oh, I need to make up for the white, you know, um, terrible things that um, we've done over the years, but it's it's also dealing with the ramifications that still live in our bodies. Absolutely, yeah. And if you, I, I talk my book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, I, I talk about the whole community of creation mm. as just being everything, right? Mm. As being the plants and the animals and the birds and the, you know, and so if I can use that term, community of creation has also suffered trauma. And if you believe there's life in trees and animals and birds and in which I do, there's, there's life, there's spirit, there's life force, um, creator gives everything that, um, then, uh, then they go through that too. The land actually goes through trauma as well. And so imagine what's happening with the pollution and the development and the, to the whole community of creation, um, we're all suffering. And so we, we think just by cleaning up a spill is going to, uh, or replanting, quote unquote, replanting a forest, which there's no such thing as that, um, uh, is going to sort of fix things. But that's a very materialistic, superficial view that doesn't account for the fact that we are all living beings trying to survive on this planet together and, uh, and live in a good way. And it's much deeper than, you know, what, uh, uh, what often even science would tell us or hmm. you know biologists or folks like that yeah yeah could you share a story with me either of your own or perhaps of other um people that you've worked with whether you know indigenous um traditionally indigenous or not um of what it's like to learn from this community of creation whether it's like a favorite tree that you have a relationship with or a particular landscape and geography that you know, um, becomes almost an elder. Like, what does that look like? Is Do you have any stories that you might share? Yeah, well, just personal stories. I mean, there's lots of tribal stories and things like that, but most of them take a long time. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll just, uh, well, I'll mention sort of my favorite place. And uh, I ta I do one of my, I've got a, this book, um, Becoming Rooted, that's going to be coming out in the I do a meditation on that, um, but there's a place that's very sacred to me. Uh, it's a spring, and um, and it's located actually in Tennessee. It's called the Blue Hole, mm -hmm. and the Blue Hole is this this large spring that is crystal clear all the way down, and uh, and there's a uh, some Cherokee stories about the the life on the other side of the spring is 
sort of like we would say the uh, sometimes the opposite of this so there's there's another me and there's another you on the other side only we're living in harmony we're living the way that we're supposed to be living and so um and so we, we go to that spring and we do our water ceremonies there um we use that spring water for other ceremonial purposes um, I used to take my children there when we lived in the South every so often, and we do water ceremonies and sing our songs and things there. Um, but that, that spring has, um, it just uh, sets there still, right, all the time. And it's so deep and it's so clear. It is like an elder. Uh, it really does just, you know, causes me to be still. It causes me to, to think deeply. It causes me to remember how to live my life um, uh, in a way that's harmonious on this side and not just have that going on on the other side. So. Mm, that's moving. Hmm. It makes me think of um, an experience that I've had. Um, I had shared with you that I grew up in South Dakota under big skies. Um, so I definitely have the sky in my soul. And I remember once when I was studying over in Italy, and sometimes I would I would try to escape the the busyness of Rome. I finally I got a bike and I would bike as far as I could, as long as I could until I saw countryside, you know, and fields and sky. And I remember lying under the sky and just watching the clouds and just recognizing what it was like to match the rhythms internally of me to the rhythms of the clouds and how slowly they moved and danced and um, I was struck by this moment of recognizing, I looked down at my water bottle, I'm like, I have a cloud in my bottle, <laughs> you know, like this condensed, you know, water particles that I drink and then like goes through my body and like makes me alive. It was just such a beautiful moment, both um, feeling the life, the spirit, if you will, of that of the clouds both in the sky and that came within me and it's such a lovely thing when you can i don't know somehow touch or tap into the the wisdom um, that's all around us yeah that's that is beautiful i love that, that because it's this one great circle right mm -hmm. that we're part of this whole the water evaporates and and uh, it goes up and then it comes back down and it flows through all these places and us and then it goes back again. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I especially love to talk about water. Mm. Um, I've, uh, I guess I've, I've been affected a lot by water, which should, it sounds right since I was raised in Michigan as a kid. So there's a lot of water in Michigan. Yeah, um, yeah but it's like, you know, creator sends us messengers, right? I mean, just creation itself is a constant, you know, it's our, our greatest teacher, and, um, and, and our, our longest teacher from, from the time we open our eyes until the time we finally close them. Um, that's, we have more to learn from creation itself than anywhere. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then sometimes that cycle gets interrupted and creator sends us messengers from creation mm -hmm. to tell us something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we've had a lot of, um, messages throughout the years and uh really thankful for that so and it's just a reminder that that whether you want to call god creator or god or the universe or however you want to to look at the great mystery 
that um, it's personal, mm -hmm. right? Personal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love how, um, I mean, I think anyone who's been exploring in any contemplative traditions, wisdom traditions, mystical, can see how much um, unity there is amongst various, you know, world religions, indigenous traditions, wisdom traditions. Um, but I love to be able to see that, you know, growing up Catholic myself, there's so much that feels natural or overlapping, you know, when you share about um, various ceremonies and the tangibility of of indigenous traditions, you know, using symbols and growing up Catholic, that was you know very much a thing for us. You know, it's all the smells and bells, like when you have incense or, you know, like I remember going to a ceremony once, you know, where they were um, using sage um, and it, it was interesting because I'm like, this is this is not that different, you know, from what I grew up with it just or a different ceremony where, um, gosh, I can't even remember what was going on. But just a lot of like the gestures, the music, the the ritual of it all was something that didn't feel foreign to me, obviously, like words and gestures were a little bit different. Um, but because I had a tradition of my own growing up that really welcomed the embodiment of all of that given certainly Catholics don't always do that well, my goodness, but I was so thankful to have that a part of that. And it, it didn't feel so foreign to me, you know, like what is this weird outside thing? Because so many of us are hungry for that now. And I think that's why there's such a, a thirst for indigenous traditions, for Celtic wisdom, um, a lot of those earthy, wild forms of spirituality because we're all so hungry to figure out how do we embody this? How do we learn from those who, who never did get really cut off, you know, and start just walking around in their heads? <laughs> like, let's, let's talk right. to people who are fully embodied. Yeah, the, the West has really tried to do that, right? To disembody us, you know, and we could talk, I go all the way from platonic dualism to the uh, Renaissance to the Enlightenment to the Reformation and talk about how all that played out and um, and uh, but the point is is that it's become uh, baked in the bread with us it's ubiquitous it's it's a part of who we are now in the Western worldview in all of our systems and so we have to decolonize from that we have to deconstruct that and say these are not the the values or the myths that I want to live by mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a difficult process you know it takes it takes some time and it takes a lot of discomfort and it takes some embarrassment and um of, of just the fact that you know we we believed things that were not based on a, a whole reality um and so that's a that's a lot of what my wife and i do at elahe um we host people um right now it's a little difficult because of covid but we generally host people we have week extended weekend schools we have um uh, longer schools and uh, we hope now our new property to be able to have some summits throughout the year um so that we can talk about these things and um you know it's not i mean just the fact that like we're indigenous i mean that's 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 okay. But like I said, we're all indigenous from somewhere. We never, I, to my knowledge, um, American Indians never took out a patent on learning from nature, you know, never from learning from creation or, or from seeking, uh, 
you know, deep inside ourselves of spirituality. And so none of us have the patent on that stuff. We're all discovering it together. Right. Mm, yeah. Share with me a little bit more about what it means to decolonize, because I think that's a pretty um, popular term right now. And some people know what it means and others are like, I mean, I kind of, I mean, there's something bad about empire. Okay. Got it. <laughs> like that form of Christianity that came with kind of the Constantinian, um, but what is that? How do we do that practically? Like those who are interested in becoming more in touch with the earth and just the community of creation, how do we begin that process of decolonization? Yeah. So, so we've all been on probably both sides at some period of our life of being uh, of empire uh, dragging us down and trying to fill our heads full of lies and all that. And so, so we all are going through the process. If you live in um, North America, you've been exposed to the West in its worst. Um, you've been exposed to the myths that expose uh, a dominant cultural racial um, preference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that not that's not just harmful for um, um, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. That's also harmful for white folks who have lived on the other side of that myth saying, oh, this is who we are. This is our culture. It's, it's harmful to hurt others, yeah. right? It hurts us when we hurt others. And so um, the, the best teachers that I know and, and uh, have read, you know, say, hey, we've, we've all got to heal together. And, and, and so, um, so we, we do this with like saying, like, we're all in this. Some of us have different aspects that we're learning to decolonize from. And others, uh, you know, are coming from a different place, but we're all a part of this system. So we have to deconstruct this system together and say, this system, by and large, was not made for, well, definitely wasn't made for everybody. So it's not based on equality, right? So that's the first thing. We all know innately, um, hey, I, I don't want people to steal from me, so I shouldn't steal from other people. We know, hey, I don't want to be hurt, so I don't want to hurt. And there's a few exceptions with, you know, um, various, um, you know, psychopathies and sociopaths and things like this. But, <clears throat> but in general, the idea is like we know what it means to live by the golden rule, so to speak. And so, um, and so, what we have to do is sort of use that moral center that we all have as human beings, and then say, okay, now. How has it been for others? And, and what, what happens in that, that process of decolonizing, which, which basically, uh, if I could give a very simple um, answer to that question, it would be um, refusing to live by the, the myths I was given that are harmful, hmm. that aren't based on equality. Refusing to live by the lies that I've been told um, and so, um, and so we begin to shed those things when we hear others' experiences, when we hear how women have been treated in the workplace and have, how African-Americans have been treated in this, you know, all over, I was going to say the South, but it's really all over, um, how indigenous people have been hurt, how, you know, in, in, in Asian people, we recently got another dose of Asian hate that came up and, you know, when I begin to, um, uh, you know, uh, transgender people and others, when I begin to hear stories from real people and their hurts, and I, I, I go, wait a minute, 
how has that affected me? How have I been a part of that system? Because we're all a part of it. Mm. We just have to figure out our place. And then it's not, and then to get beyond the individuality that we're taught, which American is the most individualistic country probably in history, um, to get past that to the point where I go, it's got to be fair for everybody or it's fair for nobody, right? Um, so, um, and so uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called it the beloved community, right? injustice anywhere or uh, to anyone is injustice for everyone and so we have to begin to see you know that that there is a better world that we have to build if we love our children and if we if we want everyone to you know have the same opportunities and um and and so that's the decolonizing process is to just say i'm going to stop living that and i'm going to expose myself to different aspects of that constantly through what I read, through who I hang with, through, you know, developing new friendships and new circles, um, uh, to, you know, watching new movies and videos, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm going to risk being the bad person or the, the I'm going to risk being embarrassed, or I'm going to risk saying the wrong thing because this is so important. My pride, you know, that sort of that sense of pride that, um, is not healthy. My pride doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that we all begin to recognize the humanity in each other, that we're all human beings. And, uh, and then I would go farther and to say that we're all part of the community creation. We're, we're all related to everything around us. And so um, we need to also take that step further and say the world that we live in, the earth that we live on is important as well. And so are all, all of God's creatures. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. And then, then when we hear from other people, we automatically, as we're shedding that, those lies, um, then we begin to say, well, how do you do it? Or how did you do it? Or how did you do that? And that's when we begin to indigenize. That's when we begin to realize that, oh, we were put in a certain place to live in a certain way. And, uh, um, you know, that, that indigenous earth, wherever it is, that particular land or place or whatever, has a way that you have to live with it. And so now we begin to find out what's the way that I need to live with the earth where I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so much, it feels much more of a receptive stance, you know, like, how, how do you do it? Like, let me learn from you. What, what is it that you have to teach me? Because the the kind of colonial stance is much more the like you know traditionally white patriarchal i'm going to tell you (laughs) instead of that receptive i like to call it a marian stance you know when like mary the mother of jesus had that fiat that like let it be done unto me like just a receptivity that um, is open and accepting and that that takes real courage it does yeah and um and, and, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are afraid right now. They're yeah. afraid of what's going on. They're afraid of the culture wars. They're afraid. But, you know, one of our indigenous values is to turn fear, to, to let fear be a catalyst for courage, mm. to let that fear inside of us out mm. and be courageous and risk being hurt and risk. And, and I have to say, my understanding of who the creator is, is um, and 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 I I mentioned that we're not Christians, but we are traditional in our practices. But we follow Jesus. Hmm. We uh, we love Jesus. We 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 read Jesus stories. We 
we talk about how to live that way. And so, um, but in, in Jesus, like many others, um, have come to let us know who God is, who the great mystery is, and in a way that's lived out. And in my understanding of that, based on what I see in the universe and what I see through his life and the life of others that I respect, is that God must be the most vulnerable being who exists. God's vulnerability to me outshines everything else. And and to even trust us on this planet to take care of this stuff and live in the way that we should live is a very vulnerable position. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to meditate on, the vulnerability of God. Yeah. Hmm. There's something that you um, shared about your um, upcoming book, the Becoming Rooted 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth, about how we can shift our, our thoughts and our desires into action, because that's, that's where, you know, rubber hits the road. And I'm curious yeah. if, if you would share a practice or two with us that is practical, concrete, that could help us decolonize in a way that's not just like, okay, I'm going to go join a, you know, a book club, which cool, that's great. And that can also help us, you know, get our, our headspace in the right place. Um, but sometimes those concrete acts are a little more challenging um, for us to come up with. Like, I don't know, what do I do? Especially when we're in places that like, you know, I moved to Oregon from the Midwest and it's not as common in the Midwest to talk about these kinds of things, you know? And so for those who are isolated, whether in rural areas or just, you know, whatever life circumstance, what are some of those small little yeah. things that we can do? So, so in, in the book, it's a, it's like, you know, a hundred days uh, of re reconnecting with sacred. So I'm, I'm, my, my agenda is to get people to hang with me for a hundred days. Um, and it starts off with a quote by a famous person that they, they probably heard of that's relevant to the, the reflection that I'm going to talk about. And then I have like, you know, a, a page of reflection, if that sometimes, but then afterwards, I'm just going to show um, if you can, uh, can we see that? Oh, yeah, no. The screen is going to blank it out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's a little shaded area on the bottom that um uh that has an action point that so it's not just reflection it's not just in our head but that we can do something about that every day mm -hmm. and and some of them are like when i talk about um uh, all my relatives uh you know it uh it, it says stand outside and look around and name some of the relatives you've neglected mm -hmm. in in creation or when i talk about um uh this uh a powerful dream that i had about the plants it says you know take time to speak to some of the helper plants that are surrounding you and discover and give thanks for each one as they continue in your life and um it, talking about um how we don't pick everything from the plant and what are some of the ways you leave nature her fair share with whom could you barter and what services for items and so it's the whole idea is to actually uh, to 
to get us to, to, to do something. The problem with a platonic dualistic worldview is that it's, if we think it, we think that's reality. But it's actually when you do something about what you think that creates an experience. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do. And then also the reflection hopefully will create wisdom. Mm. So it's through our experiences that we gain wisdom, not just what we think, but how we apply what we think. And so, um, so that's my goal is to, uh, as an indigenous person, um, to be able to get people to think in ways that I've learned from other indigenous people, elders, spiritual people throughout the years and in my own observations and creation to, to get them to actually do something about it on a daily basis. Mm. And yeah. And then, you know, hopefully that will become infectious. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. My, my goal is for us all to, to basically shed the Western worldview and develop a more indigenous worldview our own, from our own indigeneity and from the indigenous people around us. And, um, and so that we can live in a better world. I mean, the Western worldview that we are now living in, I don't know if people can see the writing on the wall, but it's not going to sustain us in the future. Mm-hmm. It's an unsustainable worldview. And so we have to, we have to get rid of that uh, traditional Western worldview. And there's some things in it that are good, right? But a lot of it's bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we need to find another worldview and, and we all have that within us and we all have that around us. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes me hopeful to see so many people talking about not only decolonizing and, you know, the wisdom of various traditions, but um, just how many people are waking up to like, we need to do something differently. Like this is not working what we have to see how polarized the world is becoming, especially, you know, where we are in the U.S. and I, I'm hopeful to see that momentum in that direction, but I'm also hopeful to see um, those who have traditionally, or at least not traditionally, historically been shoved to the margins are also finally having space to be able to speak up and say, we've actually been doing this a long time. Do, Do you want me to share a few tidbits we've picked up along the way over the millennia? Um, yeah. And that's such a wonderful Before thing. Before it's too late, right? Yeah. So, you know, our indigenous elders have so many, so much wisdom has died too early. Yeah. Um, and so many traditions and stories and and medicines and everything else have have, have departed the earth. But I think they can come back. Mm-hmm. But you know, I feel like as indigenous people, that we also have something to return to. And if we don't, it's going to be too late. And I think we have a special role to play. I mean, we're, we're still here, right? So, so it wouldn't be difficult for me to be still here because I look like a white guy, right? So I could get, get by and pass all my life if I wanted. But for some of my family members, it would be really difficult, you know, because they're just too Indian, too Indian looking, and they can't be accepted and white crowds and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I guess one of the 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 things that we can say is we're still here and we have something valuable to teach and so um uh that's that's my hope is that people and and it's not just us right like you said everybody has a story to tell Mm -hmm. and that's the thing we didn't really talk about but but story is Mm -hmm. also a key to all of this right Mm -hmm. storytelling and 
and story is how we communicate. Uh, it's how we find ourselves in each other's lives and each other's stories. And, you know, in a Western way, we think it's, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, one, two, three, uh, here's the, the simple, you know, the, the four most efficient steps to do this, you know, it's all uh, prescriptive and, and uh, formulaic and, um, you know, uh, propositional and, you know, and, and none of that stuff lets you find your human self, mm. but a story, you can always find yourself in a story. And, and, and so we need to begin to story more than we do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what tradition in the world does not have story included as a major part of the, you know, how it transmits wisdom. And even just in our absolutely. own day to day, you know, I think of uh, probably most people listening on here at least grew up in some sort of church setting, not everyone, but so many of us. And I think of how many like sermons and homilies and things that I've heard over the years you rarely remember the point of the homily unless you remember the story that was told with it. <laughs> you know, it's, right. that's, it just is such a part of us, you know, how we're wired. And most of the time you forget the points, but you remember the story, right? That's right. So I noticed that when I was, a, I was a pastor for seven years of a native church in Nevada. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we would have a little children's story at the beginning. Right. And I, it just became remarkable when I, that was when I was doing it in more of a, a traditional Western way, and I switched. But um, it, it was remarkable how many um, people would weeks and weeks later remember the children's story, but never think, you know, even by the time they got out the door, I don't remember anything you said, you know, Randy, but, uh, you know, that's a really good children's story, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's how we communicate our humanness. Yeah, yeah. Because I like it because it does the parts of our brain, you know, the executive parts developed so much later than, you know, like the, the more emotional as well as that embodied more lizard brain back there that we respond so much more deeply and innately to emotion and to that kind of connection and caring for each other and how things make us feel in our bodies versus just what we're thinking in our heads because it is way harder to remember, you know, the three points that you're trying to teach me versus a story that I connected with when I find some sort of resonance in that, like, oh, I relate to that feeling, that emotion, that experience. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I used to sit on my, in Alabama, I would sit on my grandparents' porch and our family were, they did two things. And when they sat at night, they, on the front porch, they told stories and they played music. Mm. And then you'd interrupt the story and, or the music and someone would tell a story, you know, and it would go on for a while and, and great, you know, Southern colloquialisms and, you know, uh, they expand and change all the time. But uh, boy, uh, as a, as a little child, I was just enamored with, with all the stories that I heard sitting on that porch, you know, mm, yeah. and I think we all sort of have that, you know? Yeah. Um one more question for you. I'm curious how these various elements of story and learning from each other, as well as the community of creation, how that comes into play at Elohe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Elohe has been on a long journey. Um, it began um, in 1998 with a dream I had. Uh, I was in Nevada at the the church I was pastor, and I was telling you about the Native Church, and um, and it was a very vivid dream. Um, sometimes you have dreams, and then you have like visions and dreams, 
And I basically, it was the, the whole vision of Elahe, what it was mm. to become. And, and we'd been in quote unquote native ministry all this time. And, and we'd figured out, we were smart enough by then to figure out that we're, we're really, um, more than anything, we're uh, ministering among our native people, but we're ministering to white people who need what native people have, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so we became, uh, maybe you call that a double agent, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but somewhere along the way, we sort of figured out like, what's the best way that we can help our people and help other people? And, and then I had this, this dream and I woke up crying and I woke my wife up and this is like three in the morning and, and she started crying and it, it just like changed our life. This, this idea of, of Elahe, Elahe is a, a Cherokee word that basically means to, to stand together with the whole community of creation. That's my definition of interpreting, yeah. but it just means to be one with everything, um, to, 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 to be at peace, to, be making relatives to for the earth to produce what it needs and all of those kinds of things and so um and so we started that and for four years we were in a, we drove around basically looking for um and we were also we had a number of people who were mentoring on different reservations and things throughout the u.s and canada but we were looking for that place and <clears throat> sort of a bad story like five different times we were lied to and cheated out of places and then finally we landed in Kentucky um, and um, after being there and creating, you know, a place, a community where lots of people were living, where we had elders and uh, young people and families and um, we were growing our own gardens and uh, tapped the springs in vegetables and orchards. We planted a couple orchards and it was, it was Ayla Hay, right? Our schools were extremely successful. Anyway, until long story short, we were eventually driven off that by a, a paramilitary white supremacist organization with a 50 caliber machine gun, and we lost everything. And so the dream died, the vision died. And it, you know, it took us about 10 years to sort of heal from that, both financially and, you know, our family, our children, all of those kinds of things. We lost everything. And then, um, uh, then I, I came to Oregon trying to find work at that point and I was hired as a half-time uh, professor and then three quarters and then eventually full-time and now I've made 10 year I've climbed to the top of the mountain and now I'm heading back down and and uh and we're we we had a little small Elahe in Newburgh Oregon but it was only three acres and the zoning prohibited us from having other people there and all of that and so now we've found a 10 acres uh, in Yamhill Oregon that um, is incredible land and just incredible blessed. Um, we're creating the farm and seeds and the uh, indigenous center uh, to get people in touch with the land again to, um, uh, we, we're trying to you know, build a rustic building that people can come and meet in. We've got a campground um, and uh, just trying to get uh, back to the place where we can have others living here in community and um, that we can have people coming in for schools and being a part of it. And, and I think more than anything, Edith and I are just hosts. That's what we do. We, we host people and introduce them to us, to each other, to the land, to other uh, teachers, um, uh, but especially to the land and to their own spirituality. Mm -hmm. 
and we try to get them to um, uh, basically just kind of drink it in. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's not a big agenda, but what we notice is that people leave uh, differently and yeah. they begin to change. And I don't know um, uh, if that's like a gift. Maybe it's the gift of hospitality. I don't know, but. But somehow, um, people throughout all of our lives, uh, my wife and I have been married for 32 years, and our, our home's been a sort of a welcoming center wherever we've been. Um, uh, they leave with their lives changed. And, and then we build relationships from those, uh, the, the, that initial gatherings. And, and that makes us all the richer, right? So we have friends all over the world and the United States and Canada and and, uh, you know, it's a good life. Um, and, and so we just want to share what we do with others, basically, is, is what we do here. I, I could tell you all about programs and all that kind of stuff, but it's mostly just saying, you know, I want to welcome you and let's see what we do here and, and see how you can learn from it. Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful thing. And I think, I mean, obviously you've shared that that's probably the most powerful part is really just welcoming people into your life and into this heritage and saying like welcome (laughs) like we're learning all together how to live with the land and embrace this whole community of creation and doing that together we got yeah we got all these things that we we plant and we do you know uh, in uh, traditional indigenous uh, ecological knowledge and permaculture and all these kinds of things and we teach about all these things too but basically it gets down to the spirituality of the land and each other the community of creation and my wife is as big or bigger part of that than I am. Mm-hmm. I'm just the guy who likes to talk and writes books, but she's probably more the heart of things uh, here. So, mm. yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of people just come here for her cooking as well. So <laughs> yeah. that's no small compliment. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful to have that um, combination of head and heart. Cause I think a lot of us are hungry yeah. for that, you know, while we can acknowledge that head is not central, it's still nice to have some of that formation. But when when the heart is really what's driving it, it's it's very clear in the experience. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Well, this has been very exciting. Um, I, where should we send people if people are curious to learn more about Alo Hay or to learn more about your upcoming book? Where should they go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, Elohe is spelled E-L-O-H-E-H, Elohe, E-L-O-H-E-H. Um, so you can go to elohe.org uh, to see about what we do at the at, here at the Indigenous Center for Justice and Elohe Farm and Seeds. Um, you can go to elohe.seeds.com if you want seeds. That helps us out. Um, and the, the book is called Becoming Rooted. And all you have to do is type that in just about anywhere right now. It's going to be out January 4th. You can pre-order it now. And um, and we're also going to have a Facebook page that reads this for 100 days together. Um, and so, you know, there'll be more coming out about that. But if you sign up for our newsletter, you'll find out about that. Yeah. Wonderful. Are there any uh, final words or tidbits that you'd like to share um, or leave with our audience who's listening today? Yeah. So, you know, we all um are gotta we're gonna live on this planet together right and so are our children and our children's children etc and uh, we really have to begin to think differently and um 
we're we're just one group, not the most important group, probably not the most effective group, but we're one group of people, my wife and I and others who join us in trying to get us to live and make a better world. And so um, we're just one of the ways that that can happen. So uh, I just invite people to to come in and and let's do it. Beautiful. We're excited to join you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Randy. And thank you everyone for listening and joining us as well. It's been a lovely conversation and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you much.